For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. Another Republican leaves the party to challenge Governor Stitt in next year's elections. Former State Senator Dr. Irvin Yen says he's planning to run as an independent candidate in the 2022 gubernatorial race. The news comes one week after State Superintendent Joy Hoffmeister announced she's joining the Democratic Party for the governor's seat. Ryan, how could this impact the race? You know, I think it remains to be seen how many votes uh, former Senator Yen can pull away from you know the two primary, uh, the two candidates that came out of the Republican and the Democratic mm-hmm. primary. Those two individuals right now in the Republican primary, it's almost certainly Kevin Stitt. I mean, frankly, the only reason that he wouldn't get the nomination is if he decides not to run, um, which doesn't seem to be the case. So, uh, you know, Senator Yen's ability to pull from the Republican base, I think, depends a lot in terms of how much, uh, how many resources he's going to be able to have to communicate to uh, the Republican constituency that they should you know, abandon the Republican ticket and come over and join him. He could also, you know, draw uh, some votes away from a Democratic uh, nominee as well. Although I think that, you know, his his strategy here is is probably more as a spoiler. I don't think anybody enters the gubernatorial race as an independent and expects to win. Um, you know, I th- or you know, I mean, maybe they do, but it doesn't seem realistic. I, you know, I, I continue to think that this says a lot about, you know, not just the Republican Party uh, in Oklahoma and where it is. Uh, because, I mean, frankly, the, uh, you know, if you're if you're going to challenge an incumbent governor in a primary, that's an uphill battle anyways. But I do think it says a lot about the way that our primary system works, you know, in, in our closed primaries, um, you know, where uh, you have, you know, it's, you know, the partisan folks on, on the left and the right that are electing their nominees. It doesn't leave a lot of room for for moderates to come up in that primary process. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think that you know, we're you know, this is just really uh, kind of a symptom of, of our system. Um, but it remains to be seen, you know, and there's a chance that people could view, uh, Yen as a spoiler and give him those resources. Um, but you know, all of this is, you know, we're really early in the cycle mm-hmm. and it's, it's, uh, lots of, lots of twists and turns, uh, even before we've hit 2022 officially. Neva. Well, I think first of all, I mean, when Dr. Yen jumped into the race last year, uh, it, saying he would be a candidate in the Republican primary for governor, he really didn't uh, generate any activity, uh, really put a campaign together uh, with any grassroots effort, any fundraising effort. Uh, he uh, he basically has made some made some comments and uh, and and been in the mix from that standpoint, but not really being viewed as a serious candidate out there doing the things you do to run a race. So uh, kind of skipping past the partisan politics, as Ryan talked about, and going straight to the ballot as an independent um, in November uh, is a whole different mix. And it would appear that in some instances that Dr. Yen is more interested at, at, at least at what he's done to this point in really just having uh, his voice out there mm-hmm. on some issues that he really cares about and sees a real uh, difference uh, on, on the issues with vaccination and other things, much like when he uh, lost in his 2018 Republican primary, it really kind of uh, one of the, the, the real uh, significant points in that race was that many Republicans were disenchanted with the fact that he had authored legislation that would 
limit uh, vaccine exemptions for school children. So he's he's been in this conversation, um, you know, for some time. I think uh, if he is in if he stays in the mix as an independent, he will certainly have a voice. I don't see him as being a spoiler either way. I mean, honestly, um, Democrats in their open primary letting Republic letting independents uh, vote in that primary, he probably uh, has a much more of a possibility to um, uh, potentially have some impact there in the Democrat primary than anywhere else. But it will be fascinating to see how many additional candidates get into this race as we're seeing a lot of activity gin up this fall. Governor Stitt is planning to sue the Biden administration over its coronavirus vaccination rules. President Biden is ordering all companies with 100 or more employees to mandate vaccines or institute weekly COVID testing. The governor is urging employers not to comply with what he calls unconstitutional move by the president. Neva, do you think businesses will follow Stitt's advice? Well, I I think it remains to be seen, but I think the governor, what he did say was very clear uh, in his in this video that was released earlier this week. He said that the action uh, by the Biden administration is just pure and simple federal overreach and that it is constitutional in his estimation and that of the attorney general. uh, And that he also said that getting the vaccine is a personal choice period. Uh, so I think the governor is it hasn't said anything that he hasn't been saying all along. I think the backdrop now with this executive order, which would specifically require vaccinations for, first of all, all federal workers and as well as many uh, potentially private sector uh, federal contractors, health care workers, uh, and also those private employers with 100 uh, or more employees that would have to be vaccinated under this executive order. So I think it's going to be challenged in court. I think there's a big question mark on whether this is in fact an overreach, which I think many believe it is. And I think the other thing that the governor also made clear was that just as he believes that uh, uh, Biden can't tell businesses that they have to uh, mandate a vaccine, he also doesn't believe that the government should be able to tell a company that they can't. So it's a real it's a real issue here mm-hmm. that I think uh, has national focus and uh, certainly is something that needs to be uh, resolved very quickly. Ryan, you know the the national political script has become you know so boring. It's like it's like a boring uh, sitcom at this point. I mean, we can all kind of predict what's going to happen next. Who's going to fall in love with whom, and who's going to you know get uh, who's where, where the breakup's going to be, and uh, we we kind of know all this stuff at this point. Um, yeah, so, I you know I look at the challenge uh, as you know just something that the the governor and the attorney general almost feel like they have to do. Um, you know the, the Biden administration puts out a mandate, um, and the it's it's something that even though the the script is predictable, it's it's on top, it's layered with this you know really unique situation of a pandemic. And unfortunately, uh, the the ability of the pandemic to bring Americans together and to you know to break up. Uh, you know, some of the, the plaque that has been uh, the, the tribal uh, plaque that's been uh, overlaid on our political system that lasted about two weeks back in March of 2020. And we've seen as you know, just about every aspect of the of the pandemic has become politicized. And so, you know, this is just another example of this, you know, the governor early on um, was a, a real leader, uh, especially among, you know, national Republicans. I mean, he, he you know, publicly took a vaccine, uh, made a big point of, you know, you know, demonstrating that it was safe uh, and that it was something that people should do. I mean, he's continuing to say that it's a personal choice, but 
What you don't see the governor doing right now is, you know, really still standing at the breach and saying, you know, folks, we need to get vaccinated. Oklahoma was doing so great in the vaccine rollout at first, and now we're near the bottom in states in terms of uh, the percentage of Oklahomans that are uh, have received a vaccine. And that's one of the things that the Biden administration has said is that they've they've kind of grown frustrated and and tired with people that are you know vaccine uh, that are resistant to getting the vaccine. So they've rolled this mandate out. I I believe that under OSHA law, I mean you know, and it's not just me. I think a lot of legal scholars look at under the existing authority that the executive branch has under OSHA laws um, that the president has the ability to to uh, force this on private employers uh, over a certain size. Now, there's a second question as to whether or not the mandate will actually work. Um, you know, will folks, uh, you know, abide by this mandate? We have some examples where mandates have worked. Uh, I think in particular in the United States military, we saw the percentage of uh, uh, U- U.S. military personnel that um, had at least one dose of the vaccine go up after a mandate was issued within the Department of Defense. We'll see if whether or not that works in the private sector, too. But again, unfortunately, this has become so politicized that we can't even talk about, you know, very basic public health measures to protect all of us uh, and to get beyond this at some point, um, you know, without it becoming a a right versus left issue. And, uh, you know, public health almost, you know, gets sidelined. Well, a mandate absolutely continues to uh, up the the political polarization on this issue. I mean, we've talked about this for months now, the fact that people do recognize, they do understand what their options are. It is a personal choice. I think even the governor, we have to give, uh, uh, make, the, make the point that in his video, he did say that the, that the COVID vaccine is the best defense against um, uh, severe illness. Mm-hmm. So he made the point he made the point that he had taken the va- the, the vaccination. Um, he also, I think, has uh, been clear that this issue is really about are you going to force people to do something that they have made the personal decision they do not want to do? That is that is a non-starter with most Oklahomans. And I think uh, the people that recognized uh, the, the value and wanted to uh, immediately get the vaccine did, uh, I think his education continued. Others, you know, made that decision later on, maybe not at the beginning, but to go this direction by the federal government, uh, I think is going to be something that uh, is going to be met with uh, great resistance and a lot of negativity here in Oklahoma. Neva, I want to talk about something you had mentioned where Governor Stitt had said that he didn't believe in mandating businesses to not to to do the vaccine, but he also didn't believe in mandating businesses to not do it. And that's going to put him in, uh, butt him up against a lot of Republicans who have been trying to put laws out that re- require go- companies to not mandate. The, so where do you think that's, because that's going to come up in the next well, session. Uh, well, I think uh, it may come up in the next session, but I think what the governor has <laughs> made pretty clear is that even with the push for the upcoming special session in November, uh, that he was not going to uh, uh, change the call. He was not going to add into the the call the ability to deal with this issue one way or the other. And so, I, you know, again, I think from a legislative perspective, I mean, we have seen, um, you know, action taken. But now what we're really dealing with is, is the Biden administration going to be intractable in this thought that they can impose their will and this mandate upon the American people in a, in a fashion that they're outlining. And if they do, I think that uh, I think we're going to see not just Oklahoma, but many states push back on that. 
Well, and, and Michael, you know, to that very point, I think that, you know, Governor Stitt's in line with uh, at least Oklahoma voters. I don't know about Republican primary voters, but Oklahoma voters in a recent poll conducted by Amber Integrated, uh, you know, they they found that Oklahomans uh, did not want a vaccine mandate, but they also did not want the government the government to step in and tell bri- private businesses how to conduct their own public health measures. So, I, you know, I think the governor's uh, in line with public sentiment there, how that plays out in a Republican primary, you know, that remains to be seen. And then finally, I think it's important to point out that the final rule that the Biden administration is talking about here is a vaccine mandate or weekly COVID testing. So, you know, employers and employees would have an option. It's not, you know, you've got to go get the uh, the vaccine. It's an option to do uh, testing as well, which is, you know, it, it's not as good as a vaccine, but it's definitely a proven measure to, uh, to catch outbreaks early and prevent them from spreading through communities. A group of teachers, students, college professors, and activists file a lawsuit against the state's ban on critical race theory. The lawsuit claims House Bill 1775 is unconstitutional for prohibiting schools from teaching certain topics on race and gender and barring universities from acquiring gender and sexual diversity trainings. Ryan, does this group have a case here? I mean, I think it remains to be seen. There's a, there's a lot of evidentiary issues that uh, that they raise that I think that the court will probably want to hear out before they make a decision. I don't think it's a it's an automatic you know win for either side here. You know, I, I think it's important to kind of go back in history to see how we got here. Not you know all the way back in history, but just all the way back to uh, it was you know, July of 17th of 2020. The Washington Post ran a story about the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Uh, where they'd had a graphic uh, that attempted to describe uh, aspects and assumptions from white culture. Um, you know, that then received a bunch of blowback from conservative circles. Um, and, you know, when, when that happened, uh, President Trump in September of 2020 uh, kind of uh, uh, latches onto this as, you know, a wedge issue. It's a divisive issue. It, it you know, he was trying to rile up his base. Um, and so he issued an executive order, which is almost word for word, what the state legislature adopted in House Bill 1775. And then you began to see legislative efforts and local government efforts and school board efforts around the nation begin to try to embrace those similar Trump talking points. And it became this issue of signaling to your base, uh, you know, where you stood on these, uh, you know, the, the latest front in the culture wars. Um, and the, um, you know, the, the left, I think, you know, you can't blame them for ignoring the underlying sentiment behind these laws. I think the um, and, and saying, you know, the, the authors of these bills have said that this is what this is intended to do. I think the, the real um, trouble with a lawsuit, I say trouble, I think the real difficulty with a lawsuit like this is being able to demonstrate um, that the intent expressed on the House floor and in press releases is really that the court should also look at that in the law. Because if you look at the, the language of House Bill 1775 and you remove it um, from the kind of the, the, the rhetoric around 1775, what you find are a bunch of innocuous statements. Um, and you know, a lot of the, the guidance that teachers have been given um, doesn't seem to upset the ability of teachers to continue to teach difficult subjects uh, in their classroom. So I think that at the outset, uh, there's going to be some evidentiary stuff, uh, evidentiary hearings that have to take place. The courts are going to, I believe, want to be convinced that uh, curriculum changes uh, that have taken place in places like Edmond Public School are related to House Bill 1775. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that if this were, again, if, if the law reflected the rhetoric, uh, I think that the plaintiffs would have a slam dunk here, uh, but it doesn't. 
Um, and, you know, then they're left with arguing issues of, of vagueness. And um, that's that's a harder that's a harder case to make. Aniva. Well, I mean, I think, uh, first of all, the attorney general, uh, you know, he made he made the statement that he looked forward to uh, defending the law against what he described as uh, activists who don't share Oklahoma values. But I, I'm I'm with Ryan on this. I mean, I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens with this uh, lawsuit, because when you really look at the bill, I mean, critical race theory is one of the most polarizing issues that's come up, I think, in in the last uh, year or two. I mean, and this is not just in Oklahoma, but across the country. And I think what we're seeing is parents, I mean, and people uh, reacting uh, to uh, so much of what has been, you know, pushed on to students in, in the classroom. And this this house bill that was passed signed by the governor basically when you look at it all it says is that it it bans uh k through 12 schools from teaching that one race or one sex is superior to the other i mean and you know we can expand on that and talk about you know that the that what in in the context it means that people should not feel guilty or uncomfortable about their sex or race so they shouldn't have to feel like they're bearing responsibility for actions that were committed uh, uh decades ago that at the at at kind of the heart of what the bill says. And the second point in the bill was that under under the law now, universities are prohibited from mandating gender or sexual diversity training for students. And, and the key there is that they're prohibited from mandating it. So I think when we start looking at what the bill says versus what these activists and folks that are uh, taking this uh, uh, lawsuit moving it forward, is it an avenue just to continue to kind of make their case uh, in the broader sense of what they believe uh, CRT is, or is it something that will really have um, the ability to do something about uh, reversing, you know, the um, uh, the current position in the state with respect to what House Bill 1775 says? So I, it'll be fascinating to watch. But, uh, you know, I think when you poll it, I mean, if you talk about what Oklahomans uh, see about this issue and and how they see their values uh, uh, lining up with this they there is clearly um a a broad sense that that they want to see uh they want to see critical race theory not something being injected into classrooms in the state of oklahoma you know just uh, you know kind of a, a few follow-up points there critical race theory uh isn't even mentioned in house bill 1775 it you know it, it appears nowhere there uh the the second part is that I think that if, um, if if we think about you know regardless of how this lawsuit uh, um, is is uh, moves forward whether it's successful or not, I think if you had a teacher um, that is actually prohibited at some point or sanctioned at some point uh, for doing something uh, in a classroom, I think that that makes um, as an applied a much more uh, mm-hmm. uh, a powerful argument before a court. And then finally, you know, the real purpose of laws like this, you know, isn't isn't really to change anything because, you know, ultimately, again, yeah, I think that there's an argument that this doesn't change anything. Uh, you know, the real argument here is to pour more accelerant on an already deeply divided political system. And to that degree, it's successful and it's been successful in Oklahoma. And if you look at a lot of especially local jurisdictions uh, where they have had these fights at a city council level, level or a school board level, um, they've left the community more divided than when they found it. And I guess my final point there is that it's the school board level. I mean, 
This is when we think about how this curriculum is addressed and, and how we deal with you know, very important and sometimes challenging topics around race or gender and uh, our history, uh, the local school boards, you know, that used to be the place where we made these curriculum decisions. And, you know, that's, um, I think that hopefully that we can get back to a place like that and that lawmakers aren't playing a, a micromanaging position and, and what students are, are hearing from their teachers. I think you're right, Ryan. And I think here the point uh, should be made that back in May, the state Department of Education came out and said that it had received no complaints, not one, from a school, you know, on the issue of whether or not this had come into play in a classroom, a teacher saying that they had been felt that they were being denied their their uh, ability to uh, teach, uh, teach curriculum or deal with issues uh, that they were uh, that they were bringing out. Uh, in various subject matters. So the fact that there were no complaints, I mean, this looks like, again, we've got the age old problem of uh, uh, folks trying to create a situation, trying to create a problem where perhaps not much of a problem exists, at least here in Oklahoma. Oklahoma Attorney General John O'Connor wants the state Supreme Court to prevent two pardon parole board members uh, from upcoming clemency hearings. O'Connor alleges Kelly Doyle and Chairman Adam Luck are biased and have conflicts of interest in the cases for Julius Jones and Bigler Stauffer. Neva, what's the issue here? Well, I think uh, it, it really is a serious issue. And I think one, everyone should kind of uh, uh, step back and pay a little attention to. I mean, when you have a when you have two members of a pardon and parole board where you've got the attorney general asking the Supreme Court to prevent them from being able to participate in a clemency hearing, that's a serious matter. And I think uh, in the in the legal filing, they outline, I mean, in detail, I mean, the the feeling that they uh, have not. Uh, uh, avoided appearances of impropriety, that there's been conflict of in interest, there's been um, implied bias on the part of, uh, of both of these individuals. I mean, and I mean, it is very specific. I mean, uh, going so far as to say in, in the instance of Chairman Luck that uh, he doesn't appear to be able to set aside both his political and religious beliefs uh, in his role as a board member. So, um, in addition to the fact that they they make an assertion that uh, that there are business relationships that create conflicts of interest, so there was a lot of things to unpack in that in that filing. But uh, the fact that uh, the fact that you have two board members now under such scrutiny with so many questions, it will be interesting to see if the Supreme Court declines a second time. They've already done it one time where mm -hmm. these two individuals are concerned. And the district attorney uh, for Oklahoma County, David Prater, had asked the court to uh, uh, to make a determination. So uh, it, it makes it very difficult in this, in this uh, time where we have many things coming before them, many serious matters on, on uh, hearings and clemency and, and other things that uh, to have this uh, to have this kind of controversy uh, as part of the whole conversation, I think, is regrettable. Ryan. Well, let's just stop for a moment and think about what <clears throat> what it means in Oklahoma for a Republican attorney general in a legal filing to complain that a government official is being influenced in their decision making process by their faith in the Bible. I mean, that's. That's kind of an interesting turn of, of events uh, in Oklahoma. Generally, Republicans are out, you know, very proud uh, whenever they're running for office uh, that, that, you know, I ran against an individual uh, when I was back in office and he said that 
the reason that he woke up and went to the election board uh, and filed for office because God told him that morning to get up and go run for office. Um, so, you know, Republicans and Democrats do it as well, uh, but not as much as Republicans and Republicans, you know, love to talk about how they were led to public service by their faith and how their faith informs their public service. Um, and, you know, some of that's political gesturing. Some of it, I think, is you know, very genuine. Um, you know, I think, you know, I've I've uh, I don't know this for a fact, but, you know, I've I've heard that, you know, Governor Stitt takes his faith very seriously uh, and is often you know, comes to conclusions about policy matters after um, sincere prayer. Uh, you know, so how that's different than what Adam Luck is doing in the in the exercise of of his role in government, um, I, I really don't understand what the um, the Attorney General's point here is. I I also think that um, it's it's interesting because it comes just after a week where the Attorney General uh, John O'Connor, in an interview with Storm Jones said, I think the partner parole board is functioning as it should. I may disagree with its decisions, but it's five individuals appointed to that board who are entitled to have their own opinions. The attorney general in that same interview defended the idea that um, the pardon and parole board members are unique among government officials and that they should solicit outside opinions and that they should bring their own personal experiences to the table in making these highly consequential decisions. And then a week later, he's in front of uh, the Supreme Court asking these two folks to be kicked off for precisely the same reasons that he defended a week earlier on TV. Um, and, and Neva, I, I, you know, I, I hate to correct you, but I think that this might be the third time, you know, so the David Prater uh, lost uh, his first effort uh, to, um, you know, kick uh, pardon, parole board, pardon parole board members Doyle and Luck off. Uh, he went back again. The Supreme Court, even to my understanding, without a hearing, 7-0 said no again. Um, I don't see anything that's new that the attorney general is really bringing to the argument here in front of the court. I expect we could see another 7-0 vote here. Um, and then finally, you know, I wonder what this means in terms of the attorney general and the governor's relationship. You know, this new appointed attorney general uh, has a much closer political relationship with Governor Stitt than Attorney General Mike Hunter had. Uh, yet these attacks are attacks on the governor's appointees. And uh, you know, we've seen that from David Prater. David Prater has led these attacks on the governor's authority to make these appointees. And now the attorney general is joining in that attack. I'm just, I wonder how that uh, affects the, the political relationship of the attorney general and the governor moving forward. And Eva, I was going to ask sure. about the, the fact that he is a government, he is a governor state appointee, basically attacking governor state appointees. So. Well, it, it it does seem there there seems to be a lot of different things in this mix, and it is hard to kind of get a, a, a clear line on all of the conversation that's going on. But to, to Ryan's point, I mean, I don't think there's any question that anyone in public service uh, that that their that their experiences, their faith, their background, all of those things lend and should lend to their decision making ability. And I think uh, I think the question, you know, may come to bear in a board like the Pardon and Parole Board, where it is important to be able to look at all of the facts, all of the evidence, to have uh, not so clear a bias either direction that it is just uh, a presume that you can almost predict with uh, uh, without uh, without much uh, chance of being wrong. Uh, how someone's going to vote. I think each of these cases must be, you know, must be looked at in their entirety by these, by the board. And I think that 
while they all come from a different vantage point, all have different things uh, that they take into account that influence them, including conversations and things with uh, those outside, those directly involved, as well as the uh, uh, as well as other board members. It is still, I think, incumbent upon the process for the public to believe that it is a it is a system that works because you have people that are taking that are taking a look at it in the proper way. And even Ryan's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.